0: Good morning. Why don't you, uh, we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures this morning, so I'm going to try to give you a heads up. Uh, If you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to start there in just a minute. You know, I don't know about you, But uh, I have enjoyed the last few weeks in looking at, in the Old Testament, the types and the symbols and the feast, and I had been wanting for quite a while to teach on the feast and just never had the freedom to do it, so it kind of weaved itself into this that we were talking about of where God is at. And... uh, but I want you to, it's interesting to see the things that God brought forth that pointed us to Jesus. And, and we just skimmed the surface of Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, we just, we just hit the highlights. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ and who he is and God revealing him to us. But I want you to listen to me very carefully this morning to this first statement. In fact, I'm going to have you repeat it with me in just a minute. Because all of that, everything that we saw, everything that was revealed, brought us to a new place. Okay? So here's the statement there are no more symbols. None. Every symbol, every shadow, every type was consummated and realized in Jesus. There are no more symbols from the heart of God. There are no more symbols and there is no more law For the child of God. Say that after me. There are no more symbols. And there is no more law. For the child of God. There are no more symbols. And there's no more law. Because you see it's. Man has a proclivity. To take the symbols. That God developed to point us to Christ. And man has a tendency to take those symbols and make a man-made religion out of those symbols, turn it into a religious system. And they have nothing to do with Christ. And the reason, even though God created those symbols, they were for a purpose, to point us to Christ. When we find Christ, there are no more symbols. There is no more type, and there is no more shadow, and there is no more law because the reality is here. And the best difference is having a picture of your wife or having your wife. That's the best representation there is having a picture of someone you love, or being in the presence of someone you love. That's the perfect picture. All of those things were a snapshot, were a photograph, were an image of the reality. And when the reality comes, there's no more types. There's no more symbols. There's no more shadow. But what is left is a choice. What is left is a choice to walk in reality or in a man-made religion. To live out of relationship or a list of principles. Too many who claim the name of Christ Live like Jesus came and left, only to return at some far distant unknown date. And until then, he left us this list of principles and rules to live by in a book, and we're to do the best we can until he gets back. And nothing is farther from the truth. He did return already. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 40. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He said, uh, verse 40, There are heavenly bodies, earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is one. The glory of the earthly is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And he's giving the picture of the resurrection of Christ and his body. And he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man, Adam, became a life spirit. When God breathed into man it says and to Adam he says he breathed the breath of life in him and man Adam became a living soul. Right? That's Adam. But he says the second Adam went through something that resulted in him now being a life giving spirit. That's Christ. He is back as a life-giving spirit. Now look with me in Acts chapter 2. Peter tells us how this happened in verse 32. This Jesus, God raised from the dead, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. There was a process that was taking place. And when Jesus was seated at the right hand of the Father, he, in the person of the Holy Spirit, came and began to dwell in man. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2. He gives us even a bigger spirit, bigger picture. He did return in the person of the Holy Spirit, and he took up residence in his children, making them living stones, which make up the temple of God on earth. That's what I was saying as we talked about Acts chapter 2. The most miraculous thing about Acts 2 is not that they spoke in tongues. The most miraculous thing is not that, tongues of fire, it's not the sound of the rushing wind, it's not that they heard their own language uh, proclaiming the good things of God. The most miraculous thing about Acts 2 is that in an instant God created the church by coming to dwell in living stones which together make up the house of God. Look in First Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 4. For if God did not, wait a minute, I'm wrong one. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, talking about Jesus. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Listen to me. We have got to learn to wrap our hearts around the reality that God lives in me. That is not a small thing. That is a major thing. If we're going to understand God's heart of the Christian life, we have to come to the realization that God has taken up residence in me say this God lives in me Where does God live well you say he's still everywhere you're right he's everywhere but listen him being everywhere is not relevance to your relationship with him because he lives in you to have that relationship That's where the relationship started. You weren't a child of God as long as God was everywhere. You were only a child of God as God came to live in you. Then you became a child of God. His presence in me makes me a child of God. His relevance is significant when I, I mean, his. His omnipresence and omniscient is significant when I want to understand who he is and what he's like. But when it comes to knowing him in relationship, it's he lives here in me. And I've got to wrap my heart around that. And I'm, I'm concerned sometimes that the words of the two men who appeared to Jesus, I mean who appeared to the disciples after Jesus ascended, are still relevant today. Remember, Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives, and, and he said, you know, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Poop, and he leaves. How weird is that? And then these two men show up, and they say something to the disciples. They must have been gawking with their mouth open. And the two men say to them, Men of Galilee, why are you looking up in the sky? Why are you standing here looking up there? This Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He, when did he came? He came, right here, Acts 2. He came back. He is here. He lives in us. Well, if he's here... Why then when we pray, do we turn our attention to the sky? If he is here, why when we talk to God do we direct our conversation into the vast unknown and then always have the doubts, am I being heard? Did, did it make it? Have I been good enough this week that I was able to get my prayers past this huge expanse between where I am and where God is? Have I messed up this week and they just, you know, poof, one right here. What? Jim McDaniel butt called me. Where's he at? I thought I turned that off. Okay. Why do I direct my attention out there? Why, when we make daily decisions and choices, this is where the water hits the wheel, this is where the rubber hits the road. Why then? When we make daily choices and decisions, do we make them on the idea that God is way up there somewhere, disconnected, uninterested, and absent from my actions today? Like, he didn't see me do that. He didn't hear me say that. He doesn't care about the way I look. He doesn't care about the way I dress. He doesn't care about my posture and my attitude. He's up there busy with China or busy somewhere else in the world. Why do we make our decisions and choices like he's uninterested, like he's d- divorced, separated from us? Listen, one of the most common tricks of the accuser of the brethren it's to convince us that there is still a veil between us and God. Remember when the, Jesus died and the veil was torn in the temple? That was the separator. That was the division. Well, he still tries to convince us there's a veil, only this time the veil is distance. God's way out there. I'm here. He's not interested. I don't know if he's here. I don't think he I don't care. And I've got to try and I've got to strive to understand that the veil of distance has been rended into. He is here. I want you to do something. I want you to take your hand for me, okay? Put it right like this. Okay? i gonna take your other hand and put it right in here like this. And I want you to do like this. I want you to say, God, you are here. You are here. You are right here. Pat yourself on the chest. You are right here. There is no distance. You're closer to me than a brother. You're closer to me than my parents, than a friend. You are here. Take that in. You are here. You're not distant. You're not removed. Not way out there in space somewhere. You are here. You are here in me. We must get over the mistaken notion that salvation is merely the forgiveness of sin and a ticket punch for heaven to be redeemed at some later time. God has done something wonderful in us. He has come to live. The glory that was manifested on that mountain in the desert that the children of Israel couldn't face is here in me. The glory that filled the temple that Solomon built so much that the priest the priests couldn't even worship. Priests couldn't even go in there. Now they're in. He's in here. He's closer than that. God has done something wonderful in us. It really happened. It really happened to as many who believed on Him. He gave the privilege to become sons of God. He came to live in them it's not just doctrinally it's not just positionally, it is practically and relevant. He really did come to live in us and you, 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 you and you and you and you. he lives in you and he came to live in you. He came to live in you. Imagine that. He came. He could pick anywhere in the world to live. And he came to live in me. He could have chosen any other way to abide on the earth. He chose to live in me. He came to live right here. And you know what it took for him to do that? You know what it took for Jesus to come and live in us? the cross. He could not do it without the cross. He had to die in order to become a living spirit. And he was resurrected. He lives in us. He did it. It really occurred. And he did it in order for several things to occur. And I kind of lumped them all into one, okay? So there's several, but there's one. Here it is. He came to live in me to fellowship with me personally and for me to fellowship with him personally. See, we talked about Israel going to God, okay? But you understand Israel never went to God. They never got to worship God. It was always vicariously through a priest. And only one of the priests, once a year, could go in where God's presence was. So Israel never really fellowshiped with God. They did it through the priest. And they did it through their sacrifices. And they did it through their offerings. But they never could come into the presence of God and just say, Whoa, man, I'm here. This is awesome. Never. You know why he came to live in me? So that I could have that with him and he could have that with me, that we could fellowship. What the Father, I get this, what the Father, what the Son, and what the Spirit were doing in eternity before time or creation, he has invited us into. I said this before. There was a time where there was nothing. There were no stars, there were no cherubim, there were no seraphim, there were no angels, there were no beings, there was no there was no moon, there was no sun, there was no earth, there was no nothing. But four things God the Father, God the Son. God the Spirit, and fellowship between those three. A relationship between those three. They didn't need nothing. They were self-sufficient. They beheld one another. They beheld each other's glory. They loved each other. They were intimate with each other. Never a moment of jealousy. Never a moment of dissension. Never a moment of bitterness. Never a moment of anything. There was four things. The Father, the Son, the Spirit, and fellowship. And never in a trillion years did God turn to the sun and say, "Let's start a religion. Let's 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 make all these lists and rules and then put them in a book and 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 make all this stuff up. And 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 and, and if we're going to fellowship, let's have a potluck." You heard that the teacher told her little boys, her classroom one day, bring me some things that reflect your religion. Little boy came in, he said, My name is Benjamin. I'm a Jew. This is the star of David. Little Catholic boy said, My name is John. I'm a Catholic. This is a rosary. The little Baptist boy said, My name is Billy. I'm a Baptist. This is a casserole. Never in a million years, never in eternity did the Father turn to the Son and say, you know, let's let's make a list. Let's start a religion to abide by. You know what they said? They said, let's create... You say, oh, I don't think he said that. Listen. What was it that the father has always wanted for the son? A bride. A bride. And he's going to have a pure and a spotless bride because he wanted someone to fellowship with them, to have relationship with them, to have intimacy with him. That was his heart from the very beginning. He did it in order that we can fellowship with him and he can fellowship with us. 1 Corinthians 1.9, you can look these up, says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son. What's your calling? Fellowship with the son. What's the calling on your life? Preacher? Teacher? What is it? No. First and foremost, the calling is that you fellowship with the Father, with the Son. Read it again. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And listen second Corinthians 13:14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Three things he says want the grace of Jesus to be with you. Want the love of the Father to be with you. And want the fellowship of the Spirit to be with you. Isn't that cool. Fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship with the Creator. Now look in first John chapter one. John had seen the tangible. He says in verse 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. And we have seen and heard we pro- what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things were written so that your joy may be made complete. Why did he come to live inside of us? That we can fellowship with the Father, that we can fellowship with, with the Son, and that we can fellowship with the Spirit. Andrew Murray, some of you younger may not know who he was, Andrew Murray was a a renowned Bible teacher, early 20th century, and he wrote this. The first and chief need of our Christian life is fellowship with God. The first. Now, Anybody tell you that when you got saved? Anybody say to you, the most important thing you can do is fellowship with God? If you were like me, I got a list. A, B, C, D, 1, 2, 3, check them off, you know, all that. That's not what he said. Most important thing is to fellowship with God. The divine life within us comes from God. Get that? There is divine life in us, and it comes from God. And it is entirely dependent upon Him. As I need every moment afresh the air to breathe, as the sun every moment afresh sends down its light, so it is only in direct living communication with God that my soul can be strong. The manna of one day was corrupt when the next day came. I must every day have fresh grace from heaven and I will obtain it only in direct waiting upon God himself. Begin each day by tarrying before God and letting him touch you. Take time to meet. Well, that's powerful, isn't it? Divine life, this divine life that lives in each one of us is not cultivated by human effort. And yet that's what we're told to do, to become like Jesus. You want to be like Jesus? Here's the list. Do these things. And yet this divine life in us can only be cultivated by exposure to divine life. It can't be cultivated by us working and trying and dotting our I's and crossing our T's and making sure we've done... It can only be cultivated by exposure to more divine life. What the Father, the Son, and the Spirit had in eternity... He desires that we enter into that as well. See, fellowship, the word fellowship in, in this connotation is not even used in the Gospels. You don't see it until Acts. It, it's used, but it refers more to like co-worker or something like that. But this word fellowship literally means oneness. Okay? Becoming One. When we fellowship with God we are becoming one with him. Now we've been led to believe that when you go to God you go to God to get. you go to God get get stuff from God. you go to God to get what you need and you go to God to get what you want. you go to God to, to get all your prayers answered you go you go tell God everything that's not the purpose of Christian life. purpose of Christian life is fellowship with him that I might become one with him. And and if I'm going to become one with him, that does not mean he's going to change and become like me. Somebody's going to have to change. Guess who that's going to be? You can't get him to see things from your perspective, trust me. You can't get him to buy into your dreams and your vision and your goal and your agenda and your plan. He's not interested in it because he knows nothing outside of his will will bring integrity to the earth. Nothing outside of that will do that. Fellowship in Scripture implies oneness. John 17 we don't have a record of Jesus asking the Father for much. Not a whole lot. But in John 17, verse 20, he's praying to the Father, and the disciples got to hear him. And he said in verse 20, these things that I've mentioned in verses 1 through 19, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who is that? That's us. Jesus prayed for us. Isn't that awesome? Jesus went to God and asked God for something for us. Bigger bank account. New Cadillac. Lots of wealth. No. No. Here's what he said. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Fellowship, oneness. He's asking that, they, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son, of the Father, of the Spirit, by the Spirit. Oneness. That's what he asked to take place. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Isn't that awesome? What a wonderful picture. God, I'm praying that they'll be one with us so that the world will know that I am who I've said I am. He desires that we enter into that oneness, that fellowship with him. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, <clears throat> so that by them you may become partakers of, Of the divine nature. We are partakers of the nature of God. Ain't that awesome? He lives in us. He came to put His nature inside of us, having escaped corruption that is in the world through us. Look with me one more Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. Now, boy, you look at that. Okay, God wants me to be one with Him. He wants the glory that was in him to be revealed through me. He wants the glory that he and the Father beheld in each other before the foundation of the earth. He wants that glory to be revealed in me. What possible hope do I have of ever realizing that? Well, if it's up to you, none. None. There is nothing you can do to produce the glory of God. There is nothing you can do to reveal the glory of God. The very best that you can come up with is equivalent to the rags that the lepers use to wipe their sores with. Nothing. What hope do I have? Well, Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. To whom God will to make known, What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you? The hope of glory. What hope do I have of seeing Christ revealed in me? My ability to memorize Scripture? My attendance at church? My ability to speak in tongues? My ability to win people to Jesus? Is that my hope? No. The only hope I have. Is Christ in me. Christ in me. That's the hope of glory. Jerry Coulter, who wrote that wonderful book, Beholding and Becoming, made this statement. The Greek for this word is koinonia, by the way, and he uses that Greek word when he makes this statement. Koinonia is something that happens to you. Okay? Koinonia, fellowship, is something that happens to you. It may or may not happen to a group of Christians at the same time and place. And it always involves God. Now watch. Here are two people, okay? Sally and Craig. You'd think you've got to have two people to have fellowship. Fellowship with yourself? No. What he's saying is fellowship does not necessarily require a group of people. As a matter of fact, one person can be sitting right next to the other person, and one person is having fellowship with God, and the next person ain't got a clue. As a matter of fact, the one who's not is probably going to sit in judgment of the one who is. What do you think you're doing? It always involves us and the Father. That's how oneness takes place. It can happen to one person while the person next to them merely goes through the motions. Fellowship with the Father. Learning to fellowship with God is critical for the forming of Christ in us. And that's what God is about. He came to live in us. He wants to mature Him. He wants to grow Him. He wants to enlarge Him. He wants to build Him up. And it is only done in the presence of the Father in fellowship as He Brings me into oneness with him. What John 17, 21 says. It's how we get to know him. Not through information, but being in his presence. I mean, most of us have got more information about God than we can shake a stick at. And I'm so, I I think we, no, I'm not going to say that. That would be critical. Getting to know God doesn't come by grasping information about God. Getting to know God comes from fellowshipping with God, and He brings me into His likeness. And He gets credit for it. It's how we learn to live out the responsibility of being a co worker. We are co workers with God, one with Him in purpose as a co-worker, I'm called to work for God, then you're in a mess. We are not called to work for God. We are called to work with God, to realize his purpose, to come into oneness and fellowship with him that we can realize his desire in the earth. It is how we come to advance the kingdom of God on the earth. How can I advance the will of the king if I don't know firsthand what the will of the king is? That's learned through fellowship. Now I want you to, when you talk about this, the kingdom of God and the will of the king, I want you to just set aside for a minute this huge picture that we have of the will of God. It's this great destiny. It's this great plan that's laid out. And I want you to look at it in a simple, Day-to-day, moment-by-moment choice. And the kingdom of God can be advanced when I choose not to react to the way somebody talks to me. I can advance the kingdom of God by doing the will of the king and not doing my all. I can do it by giving a word of encouragement to someone who is not seeing correctly. Give them a fresh perspective. It comes by laying hands on somebody and praying for them. when the Spirit quickens me to do so. God's got a will in all of these simple situations that we express daily. And I think a lot of it has to do with how we deal with people at Walmart. And in life. Now, let me ask you something. Do you know how to fellowship with God? We're learning where he's at. Remember the origin, one of the original questions we asked way back 12 messages ago or 13 is, where is God and how can I get to know him? But now we know where he is. We now know where he resides. Do you know how to fellowship with him? where He is? Do you know how to get in His presence, be in His presence, live in His presence, walk in His presence, talk in His presence, and fellowship with Him? Is your Christian life more about do's and don'ts than it is about fellowshipping with the Father? I've said this before. I believe the best question that we can ask to help determine where we are in our walk with God is this. Not, are you keeping the rules? Are you reading your Bible? Not, are you doing this? The best question you can ask is this. Are you enjoying the Lord? Because that reveals the heart. I can read my Bible and be madder than a wet hen. I can do all this stuff externally and and my motive in my heart be completely impure. I'm going to enjoy the Lord. Am I? Am I fellowshipping with Him? Am I enjoying Him? Enjoying His presence and enjoying who He is? That more than anything else, I believe, determines or reveals what my heart is in my Christian life. Am I enjoying the Lord? And And I find out Sometimes I can go through the motions and just be as fleshly as a dog, but I can't enjoy the Lord without my heart being pruned by him and corrected by him and in line with him. So it doesn't mean just because I'm going through the actions, I'm fellowshipping with the Lord by enjoying the Lord. Do you know how to fellowship with God? That's your question. That you pray and ask this week. So, Father, thank you. My goodness, thank you. That you have removed all of the barriers. You have removed all of the hindrances. You have removed time and space. You've removed distance. You've removed sin. You've removed the priests. You've removed the sacrifices. you removed the earthly temple, you removed it all and came to live inside of us, to fellowship with us. Thank you for that. Teach us how to fellowship with you. Teach us how to enjoy you. We thank you for just revealing yourself to us. In Jesus' name.